This is the Malicious Events Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. I'm going to give you all of the information. I'm very transparent and I really hope you enjoy. This is Melanie and let's get to it. Welcome to book club. And this book club is not like any book clubs you've ever been to before. This one is run by me. Ha! Good luck. So buckle in because I, as as most of you know, and I've shared on here before, I am not a big reader. I have never called myself a reader. Even though I read now, I still wouldn't put that on my resume like, oh, I love to read. Or like five fun facts about myself. It would never be on there. But Ever since I, really ever since I met Chris, I started reading personal development and then now I'm getting into, now that I feel like I've read the OG books, like how to talk to yourself, like what to say when you talk to yourself and see, I can't even remember the other ones. I've, I've read just like a few of the OG books of personal development that everyone's like taking their own spin off of and making more and more. Now... I am into books that are very specific for what I do. So I'm reading the Nike book again. It's called Shoe Dog. And just just like when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad again for the second time, I got so much out of it. And when I'm in a book, I do feel like a lot of my examples when I'm talking to people or relating stories or just conversing come from the book I'm reading. I get really into it and I'm really excited. So I'm reading Shoe Dog. I am less than 100 pages from finishing it, and it's 386 pages. And it is, it's a trip. The way that Chris and I explain it is if anybody, whether you are a fan of Nike or not, because I, I had a, a soccer, coach, soccer coach once that said, I never, I don't like Nike cleats because those are made by people in factories and children or whatever. He had no idea. And maybe I don't have any idea. I don't know. I'm not there right now making shoes. So anyway, even if you like Nike or not, Shoe Dog, the memoir of Nike, let's see, a memoir by the creative Nike, Phil Knight, is one of the coolest and best journeys of a business and how to run a business, the people you build a business with, um, the journey of success and failure and love and distraught. It is just, this is a, this is a big book for all of those. So I did my best to mark in the last, sorry, I'm like dropping this book because I'm so excited about it. But in the last two weeks or so, I did my best to go over the sections that I highlighted or Chris had highlighted and I wanted to share them with you. And if you have read Shoe Dog, I hope you relive this and you read it again. And for anyone who wants to know a good journey, read it. It is so good. There are times that I have teared up a little bit. I have gotten goosebumps. I have just turned the page over and over and over again so fast because I'm so into it. And it's a very good story. There's good um, camaraderie, com- camader- not commode, <laughs> camaraderie. Who even knows how to say that? There's great friendship and and man, it's just, they're so good. So I'm going to start actually a far ways back and I'll do my best to paraphrase. Um, just like most businesses, there's a few setbacks that you can have, whether it is, especially with product business, uh, maybe there's a company not in the United States, so in Japan. And because you want to expand, but you don't have enough cash flow, 
you start looking at other options without breaking contracts, but like the shipments are late and there's, there's just, there's a lot of things going on and it's not really working well for you. You know, it can be better. So Phil Knight and his team were up against this and there was a time where, let me see if I have it right. You know, we're going to make this a little bit longer of an episode. So Sit, sit in and I'm going to read you two pages just to lay out how this story kind of, this is, this is one of like the, I want to say a climax of this book, but when you think climax, you think happy, but this is a climax like, whoa, okay, it's getting real. Here we go. So um, whenever it says I, it's Phil Knight and he's the creator of Nike. <clears throat> I laid out the situation we faced. We've come, folks, to a crossroads. Yesterday, our main supplier, Onitsuka, cut us off. And that's the supplier that was in Japan that I was just talking about. I let that sink in. I watched everyone's jaw drop. We've threatened to sue them for damages, I said. And of course, they've, they've threatened to file a lawsuit of their own. Breach of contract. If they sue us first in Japan, we'll have no choice but to sue them here in America and sue fast. We're not going to win a lawsuit in Japan. So we'll have to beat them to the courthouse, get a quick verdict here to pressure them into withdrawing. Meanwhile, until it all sorts out, we're completely on our own. We're set adrift. We have this new line, Nike. <laughs> so as, as you can imagine, Nike was not the first shoe that was created. Nike was not the name of the company for several years. It was actually Blue Ribbon because Phil Knight had a lot of blue ribbons hanging on his wall because he's a runner. So Nike was fairly new at this point, which is so funny to believe now. We have this new line, Nike, which it reps in Chicago seem to like. But, well, frankly, that's all we've got. And as we know, there are big problems with the quality. It's not what we hoped. Communications with Nip and Rubber, which is another place in Mexico they started looking at, which was the breach of contract, possibly, are good. But Nisho is there at the factory, and at least once a week trying to get it all fixed. But we don't know how soon they can do it. It better be soon, though, because we have no time and suddenly no margin for error. I looked down at the table. Everyone was sinking, slumping forward. I looked at Johnson, one of his teammates. He was staring at the papers before him, and there was something in his handsome face, some quality I'd never seen there before, surrender. Like everyone else in the room, he was giving up. The nation's economy was in the tank. A recession was underway. Gas lines, political, girdlock, rising unemployment, Nixon being Nixon, Vietnam— it seemed like the end times. Everyone in the room had already been worrying about how they were going to make the rent, pay the bill. Now this. I cleared my throat. I feel like I'm losing breath reading this. <sighs> so, in other words, I said, I cleared my throat again, pushed aside my yellow pad. What I'm trying to say is, we've got them right where we want them. Johnson lifted his eyes. Everyone around the table lifted their eyes. They sat up straighter. This is the moment, I said. This is a moment we've been waiting for. Our moment. No more selling someone else's brand. No more working for someone else. Onisuka has been holding us down for years. Their late deliveries, their mix-up orders, their refusal, to, their refusal to hear and implement our design ideas. Who among us isn't sick of dealing with all that? It's time we face the facts. If we're going to succeed or fail, we should do so on our own terms with our own ideas, our own brand. We posted $2 million in sales last year. <laughs> None of which had anything to do with Onitsuka. That number was a testament to our ingenu in ingenuity and hard work. Let's not look at this as a crisis. Let's look at this as our liberation, our Independence Day. Yes, it's going to be rough. <clears throat> I won't lie to you. We're definitely going to war, people. 
But we know the terrain. We know our way around Japan now. And that's one reason I feel in my heart this is a war we can win. And if we win it, when we win it, I see great things for us on the other side of victory. We are still alive, people. We are still alive. As I stopped speaking, I could see the wave of relief swirl around the table like a cool breeze. Everyone felt it. It was as real as the wind that used to swirl around the office next to the pink bucket, <laughs> which the pink bucket was a place. I think it was a bar in a restaurant and they were right next to it in one of their dinky offices. And that bar was ruthless and they always had the smells of the food and it was it was a, a truly a whirlwind. Okay. And then it says, um, there were nods, murmurs, nervous chuckles. We spent the next hour brainstorming about how to proceed, how to hire contract factories, how to play them against one another for the best quality and price. And how are we going to fix these new Nikes, anyone? We adjourned with a jovial, jittery, elated feeling. And that is probably one of the climaxes of that company because without such a big pit and such a big wall, let's say a wall, without such a big wall for them to climb over as a team, and as a company and find out all their solutions and all of their everything together, Nike would not be Nike today. <laughs> and we all know Nike. We've heard the word. We know what it is. We probably have a pair of shoes. But that is so neat. And that makes me think of even in, I, I consider what we have is a small business with Chris's business and mine and the party collab. Those are small, yet there are some things that we're going to have to face. The pandemic, for example, for the first thing. That as we face them and overcome them and work our way around and find the best quality, the best price, the best avenues, that is what's going to make or break a company. So kudos to coronavirus for giving us that opportunity. Now, flip forward a ton of pages. Every once in a while, he writes a really good uh, quote on some of the pages. So I want to read one or two of them. So this one says, no brilliant idea was ever born in a conference room. He assured the Dane, but a lot of silly ideas have died there, said Starr. <laughs> and that's from F. Scott Fitzgerald from The Last Tycoon. I don't know any of those names. I've heard Scott Fitzgerald before. I also know there's a football player that was Larry Fitzgerald. So anyway, I do like no brilliant idea was ever born in a conference room, but a lot of silly ideas have died there. And that also makes me think of my mom, how she, when I was younger, she said one time probably, to me, when I was coming up with ideas for something, she said, hey, whatever comes across your mind, write it down, even if it's dumb. And I think that is so big in business to just think of all the ideas. I threw out so many dumb ideas, but it gets us to, to what we actually go with. So kudos to dumb ideas. <laughs> so in the next section I want to talk about that I have highlighted is <laughs> I, I wish I could find the actual page and where it came from. But at the beginning of the Nike company, they held these retreats or conferences that they started to call butt face conferences or just a butt face, <laughs> which uh, it was definitely a head turner. And they would call each other butt faces because they went to the butt face. And I don't know if this was just something to make an elated situation out of one that was more heavy when they got together and talked about the business and ideas and how to build the company and the problems they were facing. So I'll have to look that up and maybe you can look it up too. But uh, there was one time during one of these late night, one of the really after they've triumphed and they've gone through a lot of things, the company is growing. They're wondering if they need to go public. They're having a lot of ideas come to them. Someone just recently came to them and talked about um, Nike Air 
by putting error in the shoes. And they were like, this is stupid until they tried it and said, hey, we could have something here. But they were facing a really big, really tough cash flow problem. Once again, um, they're just like cash flow and lots of other problems. But really, the main thing was, do we go public or is that going to ruin the culture of our company? So what Phil says, and I think is a really sweet insight, is he says, and yet in the midst of those intense discussions, in the middle of one of the most trying years of the company's history, those butt-faced meetings were nothing but a joy. <laughs> of all those hours spent at Sun River, their venue, not one minute felt like work. It was us against the world, and we felt damn sorry for the world. That is, when we weren't righteously pissed off at it. Each of us had been misunderstood, misjudged, dismissed shunned by bosses, spurned by luck, rejected by society, shortchanged by fate, when looks and other natural graces were handed out. We'd each been forged by early failure. We'd each given ourselves to some quest, some attempt at validation or meeting and fallen short. <laughs> and he goes on to explain how everyone has had those situations. And if you think about Nike, you'd think, oh, well, it's, it was probably started by a ton of runners. False. It was one runner, a guy who was a runner and then became a paraplegic, um, a, an accountant who's super fat and very much not an athlete, brainiacs who are very much not runners, um, a couple of guys who are like alcoholic, not alcoholics, but they're just like very roaring and funny and boisterous and out there, some like scientists looking like crazy guys, and maybe a couple runners. But really, it's just like this, this put-together mumbo-jumbo team. But what he later says... Shortly after that, he goes, identified with the born loser on each butt face <laughs> and vice versa. And I knew that together we would come become winners. I still didn't know exactly what winning meant other than not losing. But we seemed to be getting closer to a defining moment when that question would be settled or at least more sharply defined. Maybe going public would be that moment. And how cool that they they knew that they had to get together. And he explains these butt face conferences and meetings and they found they found a rhythm with the venue, so they started going there a lot. They started anchoring to places and times of the year. And he says it wouldn't be until he was about an hour and a half away from leaving there that he would start thinking about his actual family, his two sons and his wife again, because his team and his company, the men who ran it with him and, and did their own thing because that's how he felt was best, like managerial style, everything. He just trusted them. He loved them. They were family, so, so much family. And I think that's really neat. That makes me think of my weaknesses are someone else's strengths and I can hold on to those. And someone else's weaknesses, I can I can help with my strengths with those. And that I think is how one of the best teams is made. And And if you think about it, maybe on another level through relationships, so often do I think that people who are very similar, maybe personality-wise or business-wise, they may butt heads more often or maybe more of a challenge for them to work together because they don't they don't have that puzzle piece mesh. So I just I love the team that started Nike and I wish I could just sit down and with all of them and and laugh and be at one of their butt face, but oh, something that he says about these is they'll sit around and he goes <laughs> you could cuz okay, so think about a group of men they're all talking about business, but also like just slamming on each other personally about things they said and they'll put someone down like that was like the stupidest idea ever. Why don't you just leave or uh, they'll 
if you showed any any bit of like anger or sadness or or uh, sentiment, you would just get ripped for it. So a ton of boisterous men in a room talking about business, but they're all there for each other. And in the end, like they are they are so, so close. They are intertwined. They are there for each other. And it man, it's just beautiful. So then another part is. Let's see. Na, 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 na. So Nike, if you think about shoes in 1960s is really when this first began. I think it was 68. They are way different from shoes that we know now. So the guy who was Phil Knight's college running coach, he is the one who really has made Nike what it is today. He was the one that was sitting at breakfast with his wife and looked over at the waffle iron and said, I bet that could be the bottom of a shoe. <laughs> he is the one who created different soles for the shoes, who would test it on his runners, on his Olympic team, on his other teams. He would get feedback from everyone. Like he was the main designer because he was the clinic, the term that they use, which is the title of the book, a shoe dog, which is someone who is obsessed with shoes Um specifically in running. Let me see if I can actually look that up. I have my computer here in front of me because I, it was just, it, it totally makes sense for someone to be a shoe dog. Okay. A shoe dog is a footwear expert. The term usually refers to a person dedicated to designing and fabricating shoes and selling them. Then the most likely answer is Phil Knight. The creative Nike is the shoe dog publisher. So and his, and his name is Bowerman. So, um, there was a lot of things that they were trying. And even when they were, you know, making millions and millions of dollars within the company or selling that much, they were still trying some. So there was one shoe that they were explaining called the, it had a flared heel. And the theory was that the flared heel would lessen the torque on the leg and reduce pressure on the knee. So it would lower the risk of tendonitis and other running related maladies. So Bowerman des designed it with heavy input from podiatrists and other people he knew and customers loved it. So, <laughs> well, like customers loved it at first, but then I'm going to read it. Then came the issues. If a runner didn't land just right, the flared heel would cause pronation, knee problems, or worse. We issued a recall and braced ourselves for a public backlash. This is the best part. But it never came. On the contrary, we heard nothing but gratitude. No other shoe company was trying new things, so our efforts, successful or not, were seen as noble. All innovation was hailed as progressive forward thinking, just as failure didn't deter us. Deter us. <laughs> deter. Is it deter? D-E-T-E-R? All right. Uh, it didn't seem to diminish the loyalty of our customers, and I think that is so true. So, and I, I love this because Nike, what they did, and I, I feel I am so much this way, is when they were going through their big trial of that, that company wanting to sue them for breach of contract and yada, yada, that trial was such a nail-biting thing and it was so stressful and it was long and there was lots of people coming in and, and possible, like, obviously you breached it, but did you really, yada, yada. The verdict was that Phil Knight and Blue Ribbon at the time, or Nike, one, because, and this is the coolest part, and this is, I love this, because I, I feel like this is a core value of mine. The verdict was they won because they were the most honest. Isn't that amazing? They said, through everything that you said, nothing, um, what's that called? Nothing was opposite? No. 
man, I can't think of the word, but nothing um, like conflicted itself. Each person they had to come in, um, everything was in line and it was very honest and true when they owned up to the things that they did. And that is why they won. And truth will see out all. And that's why I will be a Nike fan for life because I think that is amazing that truth is what really got them to where they are today. Without that, we probably wouldn't know Nike. And um, I think that goes for the people who believed in them along the way that would speak up for them. And I think that goes for the runners that would try out their shoes and the, the reason why they didn't have a backlash when they had a recall from a shoe that could hurt runners because the runners were probably just excited that someone is caring about them so enough, so much that they were willing to try. They were willing to try anything that they brought out because they knew that Nike would not let them down. And I feel that way. If I were to ever have... I don't know, a fire. I feel like that's pretty bad. But a fire at an event and it was my fault, I would 100% own up to it. I would not try to say it was someone else. I would not try to sugarcoat it. I'd be straight out because I do think that that is honorable. So if you are someone in business, if you want a good journey book, a business book, anything, read Shoe Dog. This is my mini book club of my ideas and my my thoughts behind it. <clears throat> so read Shoe Dog. And uh, that's all I got for you. Thanks for joining my book club. Oh, you thought this podcast was done. I'm actually pulling off the book back off the bookshelf because since I recorded this last episode, I finished the book. I only had maybe 50 pages or so left, but I don't want to ruin the very, almost the last paragraph of the whole book that he writes of the actual story part, because then he writes kind of a, a wrap-up chapter, but I mean, maybe like an updated chapter years later. But there is something about reading a story about this business that got started. And there's something about understanding the people who go into business and the purpose of why they go into business really just their why. In the society, we talked about our whys in our business and we really honed down on it and touched on it a lot. And so, of course, that was in my mind as I was reading the end of Shoe Dog that he, they, they, they decided to go public and they decided to, instead of going public the, uh, the regular way where most of the public has most of the share, so then the company and people who run it kind of lose the, the opinion of what goes on. Like there's there's no main chair or there's no main person who can have control in the, in the main say in things. Like someone does not own most of the company. But they decided to have like stock A and stock B. So part of stock A would be internal stock that people who started Nike could be or could have. And I guess that means like maybe they're on the board and they have more say in the matter of how Nike goes, where it goes. And then the rest is public, which they went around all the United States and, and said, um, I don't know, to various businesses, schools, stuff like that, who got the rest of the stock. So at one point, <laughs> that's, where, that's where the story ends. And so, like I said, I'm not going to share what he says right after that, but you really learn why he went into business. And I can't, here's the thing about me, is <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't used to think that I was an emotional person. Until someone told me they love me, not someone, a boy in high school had feelings for me. And then I started to go, oh, wow, 
this is a cool emotion. Like someone cares about me so much. They love me, the L word. Okay, I love them. And then and then I I started like building these these feelings. Like I felt like when I was younger, before that moment, when I was maybe 15, like I never got sick because I would just tell myself, I don't get sick. I don't need anyone. And as time has gone on, I've realized like, wow, I'm a pretty emotional person because I've touched in on that and I've been transformed over the years, beautifully transformed. And so when I was reading this book, I was pretty emotional. <laughs> there were times where I got goosebumps. I, I chuckled so many times because I felt like I knew the men behind Shoe Dog. And I don't know, there's just, there's something about the camaraderie. I hope I said that right this time about these men that I just want to be at the table with them. I would just have loved to even meet them. I'm sure they would rub me the wrong way because of the way they are, but knowing who I am now, I would have loved them. I would have loved their thrivingness about them. They were just like beings of thrive and pushing forward. So I hope you do read this book. If not, I hope you read a book that gets you so emotionally involved and excited about life and about decisions and about the why of what you're doing, whether it's business or family or tomorrow. But that is the first of 2021 season two of Malicious Events podcast is this business book. And I will, I'm excited to read much more like it because I do think to continuing education in business is great. And this is one of the best ways that I know how is to emulate other businesses that I want to be either as successful or that I want to, it, maybe if it's an event planning book, that I can emulate some of the things they do because I look up to them and see where they are now. So thank you for joining my book club. <laughs>